The Guardian. Hi, and welcome to The Guardian Australia Culture Podcast, the Splendour episode. We're recording this live at Splendour in the Grass. It's Sunday. We're two-thirds of the way in. Uh, we've danced, we've had a few drinks, and it's really, really super muddy. We're sandwiched in between Triple J and Rage today, and we can hear the main stage in the background too. We've been covering the whole festival with uh, interviews, news and reviews, so we thought we'd also talk about some of the big ideas that have sprung from the music at this festival in this special episode of the podcast. So, first of all, there are about 100 acts on the Splendour Bill this year, playing across three stages, and many of them are just starting out. So we're going to ask whether musicians are pushed too far too fast in Australia. Also, the V&A exhibition David Bowie Is has just opened at Acme in Melbourne, spanning the career of the original pop provocateur. So we're wondering if everyone else is just following in Bowie's footsteps. And finally, we're going to share our Splendour highlights so far. It's August 2015. I'm Alex Spring. I write about arts and culture for The Guardian, and I'm joined today by some great Splendor guests. First, our very special guest, Megan Washington, who will be playing at Splendor later today. Hi, Meg. Hello. Also, Elle Hunt, Guardian Australia Deputy Audience Editor. Hey, Elle. Hello. Then, Guardian Australia Deputy News Editor, Alan Evans. Hey, Alan. Hello. And we're very lucky to be produced today by our deputy video editor, Fred McConnell, who will be hopefully chipping in too. Hi, Fred. Hello. Last night, Florence and the Machine headlined the second night of Splendour, and everyone is talking about how great she was. Yet in a recent Guardian interview, Florence spoke about getting famous fast and how she had, in her words, funned herself out. Looking at the Splendour lineup, it seems that there are a lot of young emerging acts pushed onto the stage quite early in their career, and there must be a lot of pressure on them. Meg, you were thrust into the limelight quite early. Do you think musicians are pushed too far too fast? It's a tricky question to answer because I can, I mean, what I felt in my experience was that I. Of, of, of everybody, I was the person who was, you know, like the most ambitious and the most enthusiastic about where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Um, retrospectively, I suppose, like now that I'm a few years older, I would say that I probably didn't quite have the chops, actually, and all the songs, really, to to do what I wanted, um, which was, you know, to be uh, Beyonce or whatever. But um. <laughs> So, I mean, like, I would say that yes, but in a lot of ways it's often at the musician's behest, you know. Um, But I do think that there is a culture, especially in Australia, and especially, I guess, as the metabolism of music consumption is so high, that there is a real kind of sense or a trend that you kind of have to go as far as you can with your first album because it's quite rare that beyond being an emerging artist you can sustain a career you know you see a lot of artists especially local ones who like their first album is their biggest and then after that it's like you kind of get moved out into the pasture and um you know to make room for other new emerging you know and in in a way i feel like in australia we kind of love virgin artists um But I guess historically, you know, the kind of artists that really make a difference are people that lasted longer than one or two records. And I guess the question or the the, 
the challenge, you know, for, for someone working now is, I guess, how to evolve, remain current <laughs> and still, you know, f- uh, to find ways where you feel like you are still kind of, um, I guess, exploring and interrogating your own artistic, like, zeitgeist. Um, and if anybody knows the answer to that, let me know because <laughs> um, I'm, that's, you know, that's where I'm at. Absolutely, because yeah. there is a sort of second album, album syndrome, which is, you know, what are you going to come up with? Which um, I feel like, yeah, like second album syndrome is a thing, I think, for artists, but I think that it comes from the fact that there's just not really an audience for you anymore, especially in Australia, because we have such a small population. It's really hard to, to sustain, like, the mythology of an artist when someone emerges that you don't know who they are and they're quite mysterious and it's very exciting but then I guess like if you live in Sydney you see them at the pub on a Friday and you see them at the shops on Wednesday and it's very hard to kind of go oh my god it's Bowie when you see him in his like Havianas you know with like do you know what I mean you can't like the mythology and I think that artists that 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 last a long time are artists who are quite protective of their mythology artists like Nick Cave or or Florence or Lana Del Rey or like you know like people who are always in character I feel like that can be a great asset when you're trying to sort of um yeah to to to, I guess like make a myth and make I mean I hate to use the word brand but like you know just to make a character and to really embody that character and um that's hard to do here it's very hard to do here I think Elle do you um have you come across any artists that have done it successfully uh the second album well I'm not sure about second album but um it's interesting when you mention Florence because as you say she does live that brand and mythology and I think my sense is that it probably isn't a character at all and I think that's just probably who she is and a bit full-on all the time but reading that interview that you referred to Alex um when she's she, when she says she funned herself out, it was when this footage appeared on, on YouTube from a, just a punter who'd caught her um, doing a karaoke version of Get Lucky on like a tiki bar stage. Like, and she had no memory of it until it surfaced online and her manager called her being like, do you, do you know about this? And that was when I think she felt that she kind of had to rein in the drinking and the partying. Mm. Um, and then I think some of that experience of being like, oh, hang on, I'm 28 and I've got a public profile now that doesn't sustain this kind of, um, I guess, hijinks or bad behaviour or whatever you want to call it, um, That I think that process inspired some of the new album. That's, it's interesting, though, like when I feel like with YouTube and yeah. the fact that everything is now captured for all time it does give artists I certainly feel this you kind of become quite risk averse you know I feel like before the internet and before things were you know captured for all of eternity in the like you know online you could have a go you could try something out on stage and if it failed sure the audience who were there would see it but nobody else would have to know about that and I mean for all the great you know footage of the Stones and like the Beatles and you know James Brown or whoever like there's all this great you know footage that we have that's been approved by their people and their management and by the artists as well you know yeah but god no I mean imagine if they had like iPhones at Woodford at Woodstock (laughs) sorry like imagine all the crazy shit you would see sorry you know (laughs) imagine all the weird things that there would be but as an artist now if you're 
I know that this is very true for me. Sometimes I have the impulse to like crowd surf or go for a note that I haven't sung before in a song or maybe find a new way through the melody or do something, uh, you know, spontaneous. But I often quell that impulse because I know that someone's filming it and if it goes badly, you know, that then you're in that situation where it's on YouTube and your manager's ringing you going, did you? Did you <laughs> sing Get this? Lucky? Did you? You did, didn't you? I think. That was interesting with the um, I fund myself out quote, like the cynic in me wondered if she was kind of obligated to ref- like refer to that because her profile just doesn't support that anymore. Right. Um, in that, you know, part, like if uh, there was footage of any other 28 year old, you know, singing Get Lucky in a bar, you wouldn't blink an eyelid. But You're not allowed to get it wrong once mm. you do it. Like, you know, it's, I guess like if you're a, prof- you know, if you're a professional singer, God forbid you have a bunch of tequila and sing a wrong note. But then again, like if you asked a brain surgeon to do brain surgery after a bunch of tequila, <laughs> they wouldn't do a fantastic job either. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of this yeah. unfair... Yeah, it's, I think it's unfair. It's funny, actually. It reminds me of the uh, conversation that we had recently about comedians who often try out their new material in clubs and uh, and see how audiences re- react to that and what the response is, what works, what doesn't work. But unfortunately, in this day and age, um, where everything's being put on YouTube, right. you know, if they get it wrong, it goes viral and, you know, yeah. people criticise them. So I wonder if the sort of, once you've established a brand or a, or a myth mm. as an artist with a first album... It's difficult to break out of that and right. to and to play around with it for the second or the third. Or, or even or even, you know, like to concede that it is a myth. Yeah. And to reveal your true self, which is not you know what? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what are you saying? Not real? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like I feel like we forget that it's showbiz. Like I'm you know, it's show business and I, that's why I love I love it when you find footage of like Lady Gaga before she was Lady Gaga singing like a what did I see it was like a her at a a dive bar in New York singing red red wine like something you know with long black hair and like uggies on or something and you go right it's like I think it's important that we remember that it is showbiz and what we are selling is essentially avatars for an ideology um hopefully with great hooks and catchy lyrics but essentially like sorry we you know we we are selling a a a world view I think and you know you make a character to do that and it's very I mean I would uh analogize it like um when you read a book you don't identify with the character you identify with the author but somehow when you're the singer you is people can't accept that it's a character and you're not just the author do you know what I mean they can't separate that right right yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Alan, do you have any thoughts on like second album pressure? Well, I, mean, I suppose people are encouraged to go further and do something newer, and maybe in a bid to sort of keep making headlines, they'll try to make headlines deliberately. So, for example, if you were to go on stage this afternoon, and like, not that you do this, but if you were to inject yourself with heroin on stage, you, there would be headlines in the Daily Mail about you tomorrow. Right. Your music would be heard suddenly by thousands and thousands of people who had never heard it before. Right. But also my some parents people, would know. <laughs> but some people wouldn't care about that. And some people would take the publicity regardless of that. And I think in a lot of cases, obviously maybe not your case, but in a lot of cases I think people do sort of feed feed the media machine and the whole thing just eats itself. 
So continuing to build, having to continue yeah, to Yeah, the pressure to continue and, to build yeah, leads people into finding ways to draw attention to themselves that aren't necessarily the ways they would have chosen when they were just trying to be heard the first time. In fear of mentioning the, the, the dreaded Bieber, for instance, he was uh, recently sort of pictured snogging somebody uh, and he, sort of, he put out a call on social media saying, look, let me just be a young kid, like, let me just enjoy my life. And, uh, and, and I do. Now. Sorry? It's too late now. It's too late now. And that's what I mean when I say the pressure, like the mm. pressure must be for him to be this character is, is pretty well, hard. I wonder if, you know, I wonder if the world looks at the apparent life of an artist with, you know, uh, they, uh, with this idea that, you know, artists like Bieber or whatever, they have such a charmed existence, right? They get to just swan around and do modeling photo shoots and get retouched and have songs written for them and make lots of money and I mean you know I work at the ANZ bank so <laughs> I demand that I demand my you know pound of flesh somehow like there you can't have your cake and eat it as well and somehow like if you want to have a perfect life you there's this idea that you have to be perfect mm. um, which I mean I don't have that because I'm really not famous enough for anyone to like to resent me but 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 I imagine that if I ever did get that famous I would you know would be I would maybe feel that but I mean I don't Is it a fair trade off do you think though? Well it depends see the other thing about sort of um, as you were saying Alan like the feeding of the media machine like it also depends what sort of life you want like if you want to be like Rufus Wainwright and have a career and make cool stuff and sure maybe not sell out arenas but to have a, a like a proper career with a fan base who love you and respect you and like what and like your work um, you don't have to do that stuff but if you know famous father (laughs) and surely Rufus Ringwright couldn't be like he can get through now because he's already established but maybe he wouldn't have ever even come to attention today I mean you know it's like but but that's hard to that's hard to talk about I guess but what I'm saying is like I guess again like I use this word metabolism a lot because I feel like metabolism really of 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 and uh, like audiences attention spans are so short now because we don't buy albums anymore we just buy singles and even then we don't even buy them we just get them on Spotify (laughs) you know no one really it's very rare for someone to totally invest in an artist so for a lot of audience members I feel like it's just kind of bird watching bird watching it's bird watching you know people like oh look there's that artist that I know oh look there's that artist that I know but no one's actually going oh my god like yeah. because it's just there's so much music and everyone can make music in their bedroom and there's five million artists in the world and like you know I don't know like it's it's I think it really depends on what sort of career you want and if you want to be a bright bird blooming full of colors right now then sure but you can't sustain that no this, is, this seems like too neat a segue but obviously the way D- David Bowie dealt with this was by yeah. changing himself into an entirely different bird like every three to seven years right. and that's I guess that was a way of keeping interest and, and I don't think it was like well it was obviously consciously engineered in that way and that he thought yeah. through each persona but that was a way of maintaining a career that otherwise may have faded out if he just stuck to one style or look interesting though interestingly though like I wonder if 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 now changing your look or your persona every three years 
would be seen as really, really slow metamorphosis. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast from Splendour in the Grass. Now, let, let's talk about the David Bowie exhibition, which has just opened. It is uh, uh, was created by the BNA in London. It's toured around the world now. It has been in um, Chicago, after London, and is now in Melbourne. It will be in Melbourne until about November this year. Um, what is great about it is well, first of all, finding out that David Bowie was an incredible hoarder and he has this vast archive of stuff, including all his costumes, all his lyric sheets. This is a note for you, Meg, like, keep it all because you can have an exhibition. <laughs> for when I turn into Bowie, I love for that. when you turn to Bowie. Um, but it's an amazing exhibition to walk around because you see his, in, his career ch- and his persona changing, obviously, all the way through, and so massively differently. Um, and I wondered, as I was walking around, it occurred to me that he literally was setting the template for everybody else, every other pop persona uh, to follow Madonna, we, um, Lady Gaga as well. And so I wondered if, if he was the archetypal pop star. Uh, Meg, are you a fan? Are you a David Bowie fan? I'm a light fan. A light fan. I, I really like him, but I have not... Obviously, I know his like singles, but I'm not... Um, I haven't quite. I'm not as. I'm not as. I'm not as uh, fluent in him as I probably should be. Okay. All right. Do you have a particular um, era that you're that sticks out for you? I. I mean, I. Re- I really love Young Americans. Um, I feel like, you know, he's somebody who, through my whole career, everybody has said you. Sh- you should. You should like him. Like you. You. <laughs> You would, you should, you know. Um, and actually, when I was living in London, that exhibition was on, and I didn't go. Right. Um, and my producer at the time, because I was actually struggling with this idea of, you know, transformation and coming out of this very suburban songwriting world where I wrote about my experience up until the age of, you know, 24, um, in a very kind of indie, like suburban, almost like 90s way, uh, trying to write something else. Um, and my producer told me I'm going to say like 685 times to go and see that exhibition, and I haven't seen it. So this is a good um, this is a good reminder for me to go. Yes, absolutely. Alan, did you see the uh, the exhibition in London? I didn't. I was also living in London when it was on, and <laughs> I also true. failed to go. That's the lines were so long. The lines. <laughs> You're all terrible. <laughs> well, the good thing is, is that uh, I, I'm guessing, I'm hoping later in the year, it, the lines will be shorter at, at Acme. So uh, everyone has to go. Now, Fred, I know you have a lot of opinions on Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went because like... I booked the tickets months in advance. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Absolutely. What did you think of the exhibition? Um, I thought it was incredible. Like you say, um, it was completest, um, which is the key thing, because... I'm a real fan of his later stuff, all of the late 70s, early 80s kind of stuff, and that's always the era that's not covered so much by the kind of retrospective documentaries. And there was a incredible kind of evocation of his Berlin years in the way that it was designed and laid out. And, um, and actually that area was less busy because it's not like the Space Oddity costume and the Ziggy Stardust costume, so I just loved it. And I was there with my dad, who is also a huge Bowie fan, but not so much in the kind of worshipping way that I might be, or sort of he's known for attracting in, in fans. My dad is very much a fan of the music, so I was worried that he might sort of not get as much from it, but um, he did, and he was sort of very moved by it, and um, yeah, we, we enjoyed it. Absolutely. Elle, are you a fan? I'm a big fan, actually. Um, I 
think it's really interesting how I mean I, th- I think it's hard not to be a fan given that there's so many different musical styles and periods that you can pick one era and I suspect everyone probably has a different era here if you don't you know haven't found one yet there will be one but um, what I find really interesting and I'm looking I'm hoping to travel down to Melbourne to see this exhibition is because so much of um, his music and public persona was so thought through and contrived. I mean, contrived has like negative connotations, but I think from what I've read in biographies about him, because um, he's obviously himself, like David Bowie as a person is quite a private person. We don't know a lot about him, but we know what he um, made public, this sort of character and it was so plotted out in that he did sort of design these costumes and the, the backstory behind Ziggy Stardust and the backstory behind the Thin White Duke. And the, the idea of there being so much documentation and kind of thought through an analysis of that is really interesting to me. I've just had a thought, um, amazingly. <laughs> well, the only, the only thing that I know about him now is that he handles all his own uh, bookings. Really? Yeah, so if you email if you want to to book him you get an email from him like saying okay like what is it what what do you because and I and I was just thinking about saying that and then I had this I had a thought that maybe because he is an artist who is so personally involved in all of the aspects of his persona and show and music which is something that I think is not so much the case now you have a wardrobe mistress and you have a a set you know designer and an you know and someone to tweet for you right you know? someone you have a ghost tweeter and <laughs> I need that job <laughs> right um you know I feel like there's something in that like artists who even you know like um like now in his later years he still is really really involved in in all aspects of his of his sort of business how many unread emails do you think he has <laughs> I can't. Have you, but have you seen that? Um, there's a meme that says like there are two sorts of uh, people, and there's a a, um, a male icon with zero and a male icon with like thirteen thousand four hundred eighty-five. <laughs> Even if David Bowie wanted to be zero inbox, he couldn't be. I feel I'm gonna like email him not, right now. I feel like he's an inbox. <laughs> I, I think he's a zero. I guy. think he would be a zero. I was going to say. <laughs> and the exhibition speaks to that, if anything, like the intensity and the detail and everything. Right. And like, and you, but despite that, in the, that, the fact that he is so involved, you come away from it not feeling like you've gotten to know David Bowie, the man, any better than you did going in. Like, it doesn't ruin the illusion. It kind of leaves you wanting more. You know more about his process and his characters. But it's incredible for someone to remain so removed from it. It's interesting um, given that he married a supermodel his son is a quite well thought of film director he like did a cameo in extras it's so interesting that he's still you know putting out albums he put out a video with Tilda Swinton playing David Bowie not long ago like he's still engaged in popular culture but again he's a bit of a mystery isn't he? Absolutely. I, I actually walked away from the exhibition thinking I knew less about him because <laughs> he, he had actually put so many of these personas forward that I kind of thought oh he's kind of this kind of that but you lose all sense of that after that. Alan what do you think his, uh, his influence has been on pop culture and pop music generally? I mean complete you couldn't make a record now without knowing what he had done and like, that alone would have an effect and even just on a sort of base level I've seen two guys today with sort of painted on not today yesterday they were but with this sort of Aladdin Sane thing painted on their face like 
what's that, 30, 40, probably 40 years ago now. And there were 19-year-olds at festivals walking around dressed as Aladdin Sane. Even the fact that anyone is thinking about a costume in which to perform it, like um, something, you know, like uh, we saw Jenny Lewis wearing a white sort of pantsuit with like clouds on it, and the, f- you know, the fact that people are actually thinking of stage costumes is, is a reference of that, right? Well, I mean, I feel like stage costumes is, or have always been. A I'm trying to think of, of someone thing. Who? Like, what do you do? You mean in rock and roll? Yeah. Oh, I guess, yeah, that's... Or perhaps the more essential idea of being, of playing a role, yeah. as opposed right. to being yourself on stage. Like, right. Like, someone like Bob Dylan is very much himself. Himself. Yeah, or at least the illusion of himself. Yeah, maybe. The myth of himself. Illusion, inception. I, I feel like... I don't know, I feel like what, what Bowie and what a lot of... I mean, I think it's something that is quite... Um, constant in you know dance and 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 in a lot of um avant-garde you know design is like the meaning of the garment rather than how amazing it looks do you know what i mean and like those um shoulder things yeah shoulder pads and um i guess like sort of like saying something through the design is something that like is probably i guess someone like you know peaches maybe with all of her like vagina dresses and stuff like that's kind of she has a real message but I feel like a lot of popular artists now like wear things because it's sexy yeah (laughs) and that's basically it you know what I mean how do you decide what to wear on stage well that's a great question um actually initially when I started to sing I thought a lot about gender um perfect bowie territory I guess yeah Yeah. like accidentally I suppose (laughs) um but I thought a lot about gender because I at the time like um there was a lot of this sort of like the like the fashion especially in Australia was this kind of mewling yowly kind of ethereal cat hippie kind of ah kind of thing and I (laughs) Do you know what? I don't know. I, yeah. And it was all kind of oceans and owls and, like, you know, like foxes in the woods and birds and... Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, 2008, 2009, and I really didn't want to align myself with that at all because I sing like a, like a singer with a thing. Um, so, I w- so I cut my hair sort of in, like, a bowl so it looked like a helmet, and then I had these big glasses, like goggles and I really felt a lot like I was going into the trenches almost um, and I would wear like you know like a black sack and and um, uh, Doc Martens like you know like combat boots and I would just be like a fringe and a mouth like molly grubs and I would always have a big red mouth because I wanted that to be the focal point of my, what, I, what I was you know what I was doing and then I guess like Lately, I haven't really thought about it because, um, like, for example, my last record was extremely uh, diarised. It was very, like, a personal record, so it wasn't really about fantasy. It was kind of anti-fantasy, sort of much more, like, real for me. Um, But interestingly, like, this, like, my next record, um, I'm not writing about myself. Um, You're not? No, because uh, you can't keep having a breakup every time you need to make a record. <laughs> and um, I guess, you know, uh, the like artistically and in, like in terms of expression, I feel like, you know, phase one is 
feel sad, write sad song. Feel happy, write happy song. And after a while, you kind of grow out of that and you need to start looking elsewhere for inspiration and things to make work out of that isn't just cannibalizing your life. Um, and in that space, I feel like there's real opportunity for me to explore, you know, design um, a lot more than I have in the past. Uh, one of the interesting things at the Bowie exhibition, which I'm interested to hear everybody's uh, thoughts on, was he uh, he said he, he realised that he wanted to be well-known and the reason that he wanted to be well-known was so that he could introduce the world to other ideas. So he drew on things like Kabuki and Buddhism and mime, for example. And I feel like that, in a way, was something that people hadn't really done before. And that it, it, in sort of bringing different influences from around the world and different cultures. Um, and, and I wondered, is that something that you think about, Meg? Drawing on other uh, art? You're talking about not always drawing on yourself, cannibalizing your own emotions, your own yeah. experiences. Is it about those other? Um. That's a great question and you've kind of stumped me a little bit. <laughs> I feel like I probably do that but it's certainly, it's just because those are the things that are part of my personal zeitgeist at the time, you know. Um, like for example in my first record there's a lot of references to either um, a, a poems by or quotes from um, Charles Bukowski because that's what I was reading and it's not like I was trying to introduce the world to Charles Bukowski because he needs no introduction but that was just what I was into at the time and that was kind of what I was using to get my my message across um, and yeah I mean I feel like everybody does that in a way like you have you know everyone has like it's almost like a Pinterest for for your art, right? Like these are the things that I love right now. Oh, you know, um, interest is very conscious. Whereas I suppose what you're saying is that it's subconscious. You can't help but reflect your influences, right? Compost right. for the mind, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that people who know me will know of my love for Judy Garland, even though I never quite, you know, I never, I don't look like her or dress like her. I often reference her, and I make a lot of references to like old show tunes that she sang, and that's just because that is the the neatest expression of what I'm trying, you know, of, of how I can um, sort of bring her to life, I suppose. Um, and the idea of her and what she stood for, which for me is like a tragic figure um, who put sort of the, like the fantasy world first. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like that's, like everybody does that. And I suppose like what Bowie did, I suppose like Kabuki theatre is less popular than rock and roll. So... I guess bringing things that are, um, I, I guess, like minority influences into um, like the public eyes, that's admirable and quite noble. Um, I haven't done it, but uh, yeah. well, it's admirable if it's correctly attributed, right? And you're you're referring back to the primary source, because right. um, I, I was just thinking. Um, with that question about how a couple of years ago Beyonce got into a lot of troubles for, trouble for having videos um, and choreography in particular For that African dancers? Um, there was that and I think there was another one where she, uh, the countdown video has a, a segment that is almost entirely move for move um, from this little known choreographer who did a lot of work I think she was French, I'm not sure on the details because again I only remember the Beyonce video and not the original work so um, I don't want to use the word appropriation but I think it is only, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's reflecting all of the cultural texts and interests and, and looks right. and stuff that you're taking in 
but I guess what David Bowie was doing was that he was throwing back and the I other think way. Yeah. yeah and I think he also involved a lot of the people he was interested in um, on his work that was inspired by them I guess sort of like when the Beatles brought on Ravi Shankar and stuff like that instead of just chucking a sitar I don't know there's a there's a section in that documentary about her where they sort of went to repair that um, there's it's in Run the World that kind of a dust kicking choreography was um, choreographed by some African uh, dancers I can't remember where they're from Um, and yeah like there's a whole section in the the documentary where they fly over and you know invite them back to America and they're there and they're for you know the Beyonce brand apology machine right it's a a little bit Oprah um, in a lot of ways they get a car (laughs) and you're getting a car and you're getting a car yeah um, I feel you know I, I, I think that if if you are an artist who has such massive worldwide success, like you, you, you are obligated to, to. I mean, I can. What I'm saying is, I can rip off uh, Beyonce, <laughs> but she can't rip off me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And if she does, she has to give you a leg up. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Or a car. <laughs> Alan, what do you think? Who who brings? Uh, who's good at bringing cultural ideas into our milieu now? Do you think? Well, I think it tends to happen, especially when sort of older, more established artists decide I think a lot of use it as a way to push themselves or to find a new creative direction really easily because oh I'll have a go at like Japanese style music or yeah I'll, I'll, I'll make my Afrobeat album now I'll make a folk album I'll do I'll do the like the the one that people always seem to do these days is like the sort of classic 50s standards people like stick out as their 10th album oh I'll just knock out some songs that everyone knows so that they'll buy the record and I can go on the late night talk show and perform a couple and then the, the old people who know the song will think oh I know that song I'll buy that record yeah right um, absolutely and, but then people do it creatively as well like um, I know the first person who comes to mind is Momus who just like every album new new theme new sort of style new influences and I'm like I I don't know whether he's doing it to push himself, but that's certainly the way it looks from the outside. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that great uh, Johnny Cash album. Remember yeah. that last covers, that American last Bible, um, whatever it was called, yeah. that amazing album where he covered Radiohead and, and Nine Inch Nails. Nine, right? How did Johnny Cash even know about Nine Inch Nails? Can you imagine him listening to the original? No, I'm sure he had a fantastic, you know, music supervisor for that for the project. But, <laughs> but no, I, come on, <laughs> come on. Um, but I, you know, I think that that's a great example of somebody who was in his, I think, 70s at the time, like really finding a way to access popular culture without losing any of his credibility or any of his own voice or you know I think that was a a fantastic example of how to do it right. So we've gone right from David Bowie to Johnny Cash we're we're doing pretty well. Doing good. So now let's let's we're here at Splendor as I as I said so it seems only right that we actually need to talk about the highlights of Splendor and uh, and maybe the lowlights as well uh, if necessary. Um, So Meg I have to go to you first. Who have you seen? Who have you loved? Who have you been slightly disappointed in? Well, you know what? I've got to be honest with you. I've seen about five acts because I'm crazy jet lagged and have been asleep for most of the festival. But um, I will say that one of the the acts that I'm really excited to see this afternoon actually is Oh Mercy. Um, I don't know if you guys know him, but uh, he's a, um, a 
uh, a songwriter from um, Melbourne called Alex Gao. And he is, I want to say, like, one of my favourite... I'm probably, like, my top five Australian songwriters ever. Um, he wow, comes from, cool. Yeah, really, I'm a huge fan. He comes from this, from that, I guess, school of go-betweens, Paul Kelly, um, kind of very t- classic Australiana music. Um, and he... The reason why I think that his voice is so um, important and why I'm such a huge fan is because I feel that there is a great amount of homogenization now and people are singing in American accents who are English and, you know, that sort of thing. Everyone is making music that sounds like it's from anywhere. And he is one of the few artists, I think, one of the few artists, I think, that actually still um, is sort of carrying that great Australian torch that I think is in great danger of being snuffed um, so yeah and he's just released his um, like latest album and I'm, I, I, I really love it so I'm very excited to see him to see Mercy and of course we, we're, we're looking forward to seeing you too on stage right, which is yeah <laughs> that's what you're looking forward to right uh, yes. yeah, yeah. well yeah I mean the great thing about coming to a festival uh, is you get really amped up for your own set because you start watching everybody else going like I could do I, I wanted I want you know you I don't think any like any artist ever like watches a show without a tiny a bit of girl I just <laughs> let me up there let me up there you know what I mean so um yeah I'm really excited about it but I have to go and amp myself up now for the afternoon absolutely Elle what's been your highlight so far um, I feel like a lot of my time at Splendour has been going down horrible teenage memory lane um, in a good way, like in a sort of painful, awkward way in that I saw um, on Friday Jenny Lewis um, at about 4pm and then later on Death Cab for Cutie, both of which bands I was very into, or acts rather, um, that I was very into as a teenager um, and don't listen to so much now. So it was really interesting sort of standing there first in the tent and then later um, on the on the hillside there, um, knowing that you know all the words to these songs despite not having listened to them for maybe five years and looking around and seeing everyone else kind of having the same realisation. Like that was, that was a weird experience to have, but both did really great sets. Um, and then last night I saw Azalea Banks, who um, there was some question as to whether she would show at all because she's had a bit of a patchy track record with that sort of thing um, but actually she, she came out on time which is more than can be said of a lot of the guitar bands and um, she seemed to you know she seemed in really great spirits and, and obviously having fun and had these incredible backing dancers and a live drummer um, and just gave a really great show like she was having fun everyone else was having fun there were a bit of a few munters in the crowd that tried to ruin it for a everyone else but that's to be expected at this kind of event I think but yes yeah, it's, it's going well absolutely Alan topic so far uh, I think the most surprising well I, I'd never heard of San Francisco before coming here which is probably really bad because I've been in Australia for a year and it turns out that everyone else knows their song because they're singing along to all of them absolutely um, but it turns out they're brilliant they're amazing and they just have these wonderful sort of short catchy like kind of like slightly twee indie pop songs it's kind of like being back in 2008 and maybe that's why I like it so much and uh, sort of male female alternating vocals and just really just incredibly cheerful and I love them to like about them I, I was blown away just 
so enthusiastic about them. Absolutely. I know you also checked out flight facilities as well, did you? Yeah, well, that was the one thing I sort of knew would be brilliant before coming, because when I've seen them in the past, they do the same thing more or less every time, just incredibly big, silly, fun, very silly, cheesy <laughs> dance, dance pop. Delicious. <laughs> I, I mean, I, not the word I would have chosen, but yeah. Um, <laughs> And you couldn't you couldn't have a bad time listening to them. It's sort of like nineties, late nineties sort of Euro dance, but it's so much fun, and everybody's having such a good time without any sort of embarrassment about it. I, I wish I'd gone and seen them from that description because um, I went and saw Florence, which was on at the same time, um, and it was fun. She did a really good show, but it's you know her kind of songwriting where it's all about drowning and tragic love and you know she there's this point where she goes into the crowd and she picks one individual audience member and sort of laboriously blesses her like her hand is on the audience member's head and it was a bit like Saturday night you know I'm on a hillside watching this sort of high priestess faff about in a caftan like she was great and it was a great show but I was kind of like silly silly lovers in the air covers sound like it might have been a better better pick absolutely Fred what was your pick so far Um, I've seen very little I spent most of my time shooting video but I think the one thing that will really stay with me is the backing dancers for Azalea Banks they were absolutely incredible I think they stole the show um she was dancing too, but they sort of exploded on and did a little thing and they come to the front and did a bit of a solo turn and the crowd loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. And this like crowd of mainstream kind of pop and rock fans, presumably, just dying for these very camp, flamboyant guys on stage who looked like they were straight out of um, Paris is Burning, the documentary about the New York drag ball scene. Like, oh, so that'll really stay with me. Did you see the bits, like my favorite bits of their performance was when they were perfectly mirrored and then suddenly they would do different alternating things. And it was just kind of like watching water in human form. Like, amazing. That was incredible. And I was also at Florence and um, was really far back. And I guess I, I, it's impressive when you see someone um, perform to such a huge crowd um, who can really engage what felt like pretty much everyone there or kind of 10,000 people watching her. So I was impressed and I, and I enjoyed it despite sort of being so far back in it. Yeah, her songs are pretty samey. But yeah, she's definitely, uh, she's pretty mesmerising. If we're being honest, I like her songwriting as well, but in one song at a time. I feel like I'm getting in trouble. No, not at all. No, like when she sings. Oh. Like, some, like I feel like I've done something very wrong and I'm being, you know, admonished quite, quite, you know, quite beautifully but it's 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 a, I mean I'm You're too anxious trouble. I'm yeah. too anxious to listen to that I get yelled at enough absolutely uh, for me uh, my highlight was has been so far the Rubens I love Sam oh. watching him he's he's great I think he's the next great Australian frontman uh, he took to the the crowd in a giant inflatable boat and was uh, sort of voided up uh, in the best way possible by this sea of adoring fans and then jumped on stage and sprayed everybody with champagne and I was like that's what a fr- rock and roll frontman's got to do so he, he was great and I can't wait to hear the new album too so well so yeah absolutely well, uh, that's it for now. Thank you for joining us for this special Splendour episode. If you head over to theguardian.com and click on Culture, you'll find our Culture podcast page with a list of everything that we've talked about today and links to the articles we've mentioned. For now, uh, I'd like to say a big thank you to Meg um, for joining us. Thank you for having me. A big thank you to Alan as well. Thanks. A big thank you to Elle. Cheers. And also to the wonderful Fred. Um, you can follow us all on Twitter. Follow Meg at Washington X. Follow L on at Mademoiselle L M L 
E underscore E L L E. Follow um, Alan on It's Alan Evans and follow Fred on at Fred McConnell. Um, come and tell us what you think on our Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture, on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture, or send us your splendor pics on Instagram, Guardian Culture Oz. We'll see you here next month back on the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio. 